this morning. And when, when God called Abraham out of Ur, away from his family, away from everything he was familiar with, he departed with nothing but faith in God's covenant promise. He didn't know where he was going. Uh, he didn't know the challenges that awaited him on his journey. Uh, he j- simply had the promise of blessing. Um, what he also knew was that the promises that God gave to him were not going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. He had a perspective that serves as a model for all believers. We learn this from the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verses 9 through 10. By faith, speaking of Abraham, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham was looking forward, of course, to living in the promised land and all of the immediate blessings that would come from living in the promised land. But he knew all along that his final destination was much better, was far superior than anything this earth had to offer. He lived this life primarily with a view to enjoy the blessings and benefits of a life to come. That was what motivated him. And so this final cycle of revelation, we've seen, we've seen the, the judgments of the um, seals and the trumpets and the bowls all occurring in parallel fashion. We, we know that it's, it's really difficult to try to maintain a chronological order in the book of Revelation because it, 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 appears, it appears that it's not written <laughs> to be read in that way. It's to be read in, in, in a cyclical fashion, to see these things as repeating, back in, uh, you know, coming back to the beginning of this present age and bringing um, about the culmination at the end of this age. Right, so readers are supposed to see this, the repeated themes of evil and persecution that span this entire church age from between Christ's first and second coming. Ultimately, we do see that God remains in complete control throughout Revelation. Right, Jesus has already won the victory, and he will bring about the consummation of that victory upon his return. And so in this final cycle, John portrays a symbolic picture of that consummation. That's what we have in these last two chapters. In Revelation 21 and 22, they reveal the reward of perseverance for the saints. The promise of this vision is meant to fill all of us with the hope that Abraham possessed. That we too might live with a view to enjoy the blessings and benefits of a life to come. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Thankful once again for these reminders of your covenant faithfulness. We pray that as we read this passage, we might be filled with joy, unspeakable joy. That we might have peace even in our our present trials and circumstances, recognizing that it's not for the, the joys of this life that we primarily live, but for the joys of a life to come. And we taste that. We do taste some of those joys even now because of our union with Christ and yet we see here in this passage that it will come about, it'll, 
arrive at the culmination in Christ's return as he ushers us in to the new heaven and new earth. Although we might enjoy worshiping uh, alongside this transformed community, unhindered by sin, unhindered by uh, suffering and pain. Lord, we look forward to that day. We pray that you would fill us with hope for that, even now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth. And soften our hearts to respond to it in obedience. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Amen. This is the end of the reading of God's holy word. Well, this passage does continue on through chapter 22, verse 5, this reflection upon the New Jerusalem, but we're going to break this up into two sermons looking at the next half um, next week. But we begin with this angel, one of John's familiar guides in Revelation, now taking him to see the appearance of the city. We'll look at verses 9 through 14 as the appearance of the city. That's your first section in your outline. And in verses 9 through 11, this angel takes John to a high mountain from which he would be able to see the holy city Jerusalem descending from heaven. And so he comes all the way up to one of the highest peaks in the region in order to, to get a vantage point right, of this city descending. 
The, the new Jerusalem is described as appearing like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. The city represents the radiance of the glory of God. But notice the combination of images. Verse 9, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So come, I'm going to show you the bride. And, and he takes him and shows him the holy city. It, was this like a, a bait and switch that the angel was pulling on John? You know, come on in, inside and, and, and then you, and then you got to, he sells him something different. Right? That's, that's not what's going on here. The angel's not employing a bait and switch tactic. Both the image of the bride and the city convey something about God's presence with his people. It's symbolic imagery. Once again, that we've become very familiar with in, in the book of Revelation. First of all, the Lamb's bride reveals this intimacy with God. Right, that God enjoys with his covenant people. That's begun in this life by faith, but reaches its full enjoyment at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We looked at that in chapter 19. So the true beauty of the bride is, is contrasted with the fleeting fashion that's actually described with very similar language of the harlot back in chapter uh, 17. The harlot used her attractiveness in order to seduce, but here the bride of the lamb uses her beauty to display the radiance of the glory of God. Right? That's, that's their goal. That's their purpose, to display the glory of God. And so the lamb's bride must be adorned and prepared for the day of the wedding. That's, that's been a consistent theme in Revelation. And now you have this city. The bride is also a, a holy city. And cities, if it's a, a holy city, then it's inhabited by holy citizens. Right? It's contrasted with the wicked city of Babylon that we saw in chapter 18, whose whose wealth was used in order to expand her own corrupting influence across the globe. New Jerusalem instead displays its wealth, which again is a reflection of the glory of God, for all to enjoy. And so the holy city can only be inhabited by holy citizens. And just as the bride clothed herself with garments that God provided so the city is coming down out of heaven from God in other words it's a city that is built by God not by human hands as Abraham was looking forward to both intimacy and holiness are gifts from God they are not earned by man And so the combined image of a bride and a city show us how God is perfecting a people for himself. He is completing the work that he began. Those who were justified are also being sanctified and they will eventually be glorified. The bride doesn't walk down the aisle until she's fully adorned. And the new Jerusalem is only populated by holy citizens. And so that's why we strive for holiness, without which, the author of Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. Holiness is far more important than happiness. All right, so if your happiness were God's primary aim, then he would, he would never ordain suffering. 
He would always want you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And, and some unfortunately proclaim that gospel. It's a, a foreign gospel. It's an alternative gospel. It's not the gospel. If happiness is your priority, then holiness will be compromised. Right? We witnessed this uh, in my last year in, in seminary. The executive minister of the church where I interned had an affair with another married staff member, both of families with children. Um, so two families were devastated by this pursuit of fleeting pleasures of sin. And the reasoning of this former pastor was that God wanted him to be happy, and he wasn't happy in his marriage. And so he pursued sin, and he compromised the pursuit of holiness in order to indulge in the fleeting pleasures of sin. But God's purposes are much greater than your experience in this life. Right? He is preparing you for endless happiness within the context of perfect holiness. You can't truly have one without the other. And so the identity of the New Jerusalem is described in verses 12 through 14. It's a combination of members of the universal church across time and space. So the Old Testament is represented by the inscription of the 12 tribes of Israel that are placed upon the gates of the city. And then the New Testament is represented by the names of the 12 apostles written on the foundations of the wall. So the only reason that the universal church is able to reflect God's glory is because of what Christ has done. Right? He is the radiance of God's glory who became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our hearts are enlightened by Christ, whose face displays the glory of God, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So Christ in you is the hope of glory. And so Christ brought God's glory to us so that we then might reflect that glory beginning Dimly, even now, but then perfectly forevermore. Listen to the way Joel Beakey puts it. He says, in this passage, we are not so much looking through a window into the world to come, but into a kind of mirror. As members of Christ's body, the church, we see ourselves as we are now in principle and as we shall be hereafter in perfection. And so the glory of God will be reflected by the wife of the Lamb throughout eternity. That's, that's really my summary of this passage. God not only enlightens our understanding of his glory through Christ, but he also transforms us by his spirit from one degree of glory to another as we behold his glory. This reality is in progress even now. The bride has been enabled to perform righteous deeds, as we read in chapter 19, verses 7 through 8, with which she will clothe herself in eternity. And so being adorned with holiness now is purifying the bride and establishing the character of the eternal city. 
And so if this is what God emphasizes about our eternal state, if this is how he wants to describe what we will look like and what we will be about for all eternity, shouldn't it take precedence in our lives now? God is transforming you to reflect the holiness of his glory in your salvation. And so we know God prioritizes your personal holiness. The question is, do you? Is it a priority for you? After the angel showed John the appearance of the city, he goes on to take the the measurements of the city in verses 15 through 17. And the measurements of the New Jerusalem symbolize the, the universal scope of God's glory. The human measurements are also an angel's measurements, it says in verse 17. So there's no need to wrestle with the challenges of of trying to make sense of the dimensions as if this is a literal city. But we can use them to understand something of a a concept. And so we can determine that 12,000 stadia covers roughly 1,500 miles. And the city is equal in length and width and height. And so this is a, a distance that would cover half of the United States. it would also reach upwards that same distance, 1,500 miles, well beyond the Earth's atmosphere. In fact, 80% of the holy city would be in outer space. I'm not sure how to imagine that, if these are just really, really tall buildings, or if they're somehow floating and there's, there's ability to just, you know, I mean, it's, it's a futuristic world. But whatever it's going to look like, it's magnificent. It's, it's massive. And then when you take into account that the wall is said to be 144 cubits, which is a mere 216 feet. That's a tall wall. But it comes nowhere near the 1,500 miles that, that makes up the height of this city. So is it just the foundation, just the base that's being protected here? Uh, Some have suggested, especially those who want to take this city as a very literal city, they want to suggest that that's just the width of the wall. 216 feet is the width of the wall, so that it's, it's a really massive wall, and it doesn't describe the height. It doesn't measure the height, but that's, that's not how the text portrays it. And in fact, um, even, even 216 feet wide wall would not provide an adequate foundation for a 1,500 mile high building. So, what's the point? Well, it's not to get so technical, but to recognize that the New Jerusalem spans the region of the known Hellenistic world at the time of John's writing. He's describing an area that spans this entire known region. And so as God is sealing the saints in Revelation 7.3, he's now measuring them, which implies his preserving of them. And this city incorporates all saints from every age, and the wall protects them. The dimensions of the most holy place in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple, the most holy place right in the middle there, also followed these same measurements. It formed a perfect cube. It's described in 1 Kings 6.20. It's only 20 cubits. 
long, wide, and high. But that was the description of the most holy place. And so now we see the presence of God, which filled the most holy place, now expands to the borders of the holy city. So that everywhere you go, everything you do is surrounded by the glory of God. All this talk of of measurements got me thinking about ratios. And... Our family appreciates a a particular amusement park, and maybe for a season there, we appreciated it a bit too much. In terms of the the ratio between suffering and joy, amusement parks provide a fairly poor return on your investment. Think about it. The ratio of time spent waiting in line compared to actually enjoying the ride is probably something like 60 to 30. 60 minutes of waiting for three minutes of fun. And the newer the ride, the lengthier the wait. The older the ride, the lower the amount of fun. So there's a trade-off to the ratio that, that I don't think ever works out in, the, in your favor in amusement parks. That doesn't take into account the ratio of time spent walking and standing compared to resting. And the longer you rest, the fewer the amount of rides that you'll be able to wait forever to enjoy. It's just a compounding problem. And it only gets worse. Right? The ratio of time spent listening to children whine about what they don't have compared to hearing them laugh and enjoy what they do have and where they are is pretty, pretty low. Even in the happiest place on earth, there remains plenty of pain and suffering. And if you've ever been to an amusement park, you have to say a heartily amen to that. <sighs> Am I just being cynical? You know, on a serious note, how often is your joy in this life mixed with fear and doubt? And we never fully appreciate God's blessings in this life because we know from experience how quickly things can shift from hope to despair. Eternity will be nothing like that. Now, Jesus left the protection of heaven in order to purchase our protection on the cross. He entered into the midst of fallen humanity without ever being tainted by the sin of fallen humanity. He submitted himself to corruption without ever becoming corrupt himself. He willingly laid down his life in order that he might bear the full weight of God's wrath in place of all who put their faith in him. And it's because of the cross that we can now enjoy God's full protection forever. And so we will be fully protected by God's presence in order to fully enjoy God's presence. His glory extends to the redeemed from all nations and it protects saints in every way. These measurements represent the guarantee of your spiritual, physical, and psychological protection for all eternity and any other kind of protection you can imagine. It's guaranteed in eternity. And so shouldn't that knowledge change the way you live today? Again, you have been sealed and measured for this perfect eternity. But you can imperfectly begin to live for that purpose even now. There's a hope 
as being given to the saints that is relevant to us today. And although the, the vision, again, continues to the verse 5 of chapter 22, we're just going to close looking at verses 18 through 21. And this is the material of the city. I'm not going to take the time to reread these verses or to even consider all the various gems that are described here, the jewels. But it's, it's talking about this variegated display of God's glory that will be enjoyed by all who inhabit the New Jerusalem at all times. Right, God's view of the church. This is a description of, of God's view of the church, and it should be our goal. Right, these jewels correspond, in fact, to Aaron's breastplate. Eight of them are identical in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Uh, in Exodus chapter 28, verses 15 through 21, you have eight identical uh, stones mentioned there. And even the ones that, that are not identical um, are, are simply synonyms for the same ones. Right? So it's, it's clearly a reflection upon the same kind of, of jewels and precious stones. And they point to the value of those who possess them. And, and these descriptions were actually of the heavenly throne room as well. That we saw in, in Ezekiel, we saw it earlier in Revelation. So this picture of a heavenly tabernacle is what was, was the, the earthly ta- tabernacle pointed to. It was a symbol of that heavenly glory. And so Christ represents God's infinite worth. One of the descriptions of the, the gate is that, it, that they are made out of a, a single pearl, each one or 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. Well, Jesus in Matthew 13 describes the gospel as worth trading all of our possessions in order to secure the pearl of great price. It's worth selling everything in order to obtain that great pearl. Nothing in this life could ever be valued higher. The new Jerusalem only magnifies that value because we have more of Christ. And so as priests, we will forever reflect the beauty and glory of God, always appreciating the aroma of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. R.C. Sproul says, Our lives say much more about how we think than our books do. Our lives say much more about how we think than our books do. The theories we preach are not always the ones we actually believe. The theories we live are the ones we really believe. And we can talk about this. We can say we, we, we look forward to this. We long for it. But how we live is actually a reflection of what we believe what we really believe. And if Christ is of infinite worth, and if the church is the body of Christ, then our commitment to the peace and prosperity of the church ought to supersede any worldly commitment.
and the glory of God will be reflected by the wife of the Lamb throughout eternity. And so the church has been gathered in order to participate in this New Jerusalem project. And there's a focus upon our corporate holiness. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So if we believe this is our final destiny, should we not make it a priority to participate even now? Right, to, to take up this same agenda for ourselves and to live for God's kingdom purposes and not our own. To be willing, in fact, to suffer in this life because we know that our joys will be magnified for all eternity. And nothing will compare. So let us thank him for that blessed promise. Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again for these truths that we've seen in this passage, for these promises that you have given to us, your church. We thank you for the image of a bride and of a city and of a, a glorious description that, that we will enjoy for all eternity, Lord. It's a description of our enjoyment of your presence, which we sense and enjoy and experience to a degree even now, but it will be magnified from just like the description of the most holy place being described in terms of cubits to now being described in terms of stadia in the new Jerusalem from feet to miles Lord it's a, a glorious picture of the inheritance that awaits and Lord we recognize and we long for that even now to to taste and see that you are good. And so, Lord, fill us with that joy and that hope that as we depart here, we might, we might never forget this description. And that we might begin to live our lives in, in light of that truth. And that it might motivate us toward love and good deeds. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.